0: Hello, my friends, and welcome to the worldwide broadcast of the Ted Nostin Brewer Show, bringing you the latest world news and health research. Got a great show in store for you guys today, and be sure, if you need anything please check out the website at healthmasters.com. I told you yesterday I was putting it on sale, the D3-10,000 with K2. Did a 20% off blowout sale on it. I've encouraged everybody. It's so crucial right now that everybody keeps their immune system strong. And D3 is always at the top of the list, on my list and dad's list, especially as we go into the winter months and the sun isn't as out as much as it is and people aren't outside as much as they normally are it is absolutely crucial and I've talked about it repeatedly and another research study that I haven't, I haven't seen in a while and I pulled it back up because I was reading about it yesterday as I was getting the article ready and also getting the product ready make sure everything was on sale there was a research that was done with the International Agency for Research on Cancer in Lyon, France and they reviewed 18 trial tests that involved 57,000 people. And they concluded that vitamin D supplements can not actually prolong life by warding off Diseases and so six years after the initial study were done on the fifty-seven thousand people, the researchers followed up on the subjects to see what, if any, effect the vitamin D supplementation had on their body. What they found is those who choose who chose to took D three supplements had a seven percent chance of living longer than people who did not take vitamin D supplements. Now, granted, seven percent isn't a huge number, but it's large enough to encourage researchers to basically look at why and how you can do this. And if it's something as simple as taking a little bit of extra D3 every single day, you know, 7%, I like the number 7, I think that's a good number to throw out there. And remember, this didn't factor in any lifestyle habits or anything. Some of these individuals basically may have not had a great lifestyle, so forth. They're just based off the vitamin D supplementation. And also, to you guys know I've always encouraged everybody, if you're pregnant and you're trying to get pregnant, when your wife's trying to get pregnant, D3 is absolutely crucial. I remember when Lana was pregnant, and I, didn't, I did not realize the importance of it to this extent in neonatal care until, basically in prenatal care, until, I, until Lana got pregnant. We started going to the midwife, really, really natural-based midwife, and she had bloods drawn on Lana every single month. And the main thing, the number one thing that they looked for on every blood panel test was D3 levels. Now, it's ironic because I kept past the midwife. I'm like, man, you're testing bloods like every single month or every other month at the latest. And she goes, D3 is unbelievably important right now, Austin. you got to keep her D3 levels up. And Lana was taking 20,000 IUs a day of D3 to keep her in that 50 range of the D3 levels. And it's funny, one of my good friends, when she was pregnant, her and her husband were having their first kid she was asking me you know all these different things about what she can do when I had her on the prenatals and the omega 3 and the folate and the extra D3 and I asked her I said well what is your doctor said your D3 levels are at she's like Well, I don't don't think he's tested them. I'll ask him. Sure enough, she's three months pregnant already. Hadn't even tested her D3 levels. Tested them one time at four months when she went in there, and then she continued to ask him to test them every time they would do blood work. He was only doing one time. One D3 test the entire pregnancy. That's all they wanted to do. And it is absolutely crucial because there's another study that came out, and it was showing now that 5 to 15% of breastfed infants were receiving basically D3 that was currently recommended. Although the formula-fed infants were not included in the study, the researchers noted the infants would basically need to drink 42 ounces of formula in order to get the 400 IUs of D3 that was recommended for them. And that's why it was so important that the moms – make sure they take additional D3. And if you can't breastfeed, then you make sure your child's getting additional supplemental D3. And that's why we also make the liquid vitamin D3 that we carry on the website at health master. So wanted to throw that out there this morning and just remind everybody, it's very important and it's our responsibility to take care of our health, our responsibility, not your doctors, not your friends, not your sisters, not your cousins. It's your responsibility to take care of your health. And if you're the head of your household, It's your responsibility to look out for the health and well being of your family and your children. So, I just want to encourage everybody on that today. Again, the D3 is on sale for 20% off on the website. So, be sure to check it out. We have an awesome guest today, good friend of mine, incredible man, Dr. Mark Rutland. I'm going to let Dad introduce him here, but this is going to be a
1: really, really good show today. I hope you guys enjoy it. What do you think, Dad? Uh, i think you're absolutely right as far as the person who's in charge of the, the health of the family is the is the patriarch or the matriarch i remember i heard zig ziglar a good friend of mine one time say that you know he heard an old baptist preacher say that every pot sits on its own bottom in other words we're all responsible for what we do and we got to take care of our health It's really 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 important now dr mark rutland has been a friend of mine for almost 20 years uh, Great guy. He's head of two major universities, Christian universities in the last years. He's author of many books, and he has a brand-new book called Of Kings and Prophets. And he's talking in, in detail in here about what happens when a prophet, even a current-day prophet, has a prophecy that he basically says, thus saith the Lord, and this prophecy does not come to pass. What's that prophet supposed to do? Because as you know, guys, many people in the past three or four or five, six years have been claiming to hold the office of prophet and they have claimed that Donald Trump is now still ruling the world from Mar-a-Lago. And we're going to talk about all that today. When they should make a decision as to maybe they missed what they should have said or maybe they didn't really hear from the Lord. But Dr. Mark Rutland's an absolutely amazing man. He's one of the smartest men that I've ever met. He has probably one of the most extensive vocabularies of anyone I've ever met. And I consider him to be a good friend. And you guys know that that endorsement doesn't happen very often for me. So Mark, good to have you with me today and good to have you on the show. Hey. Do you have any any opening comments you want to start with? Thank you, Ted and Austin, and I uh, appreciate so much
2: being here. It's so exciting to be with you. Always, you have been a friend and a friend of our ministry for so many years, and you were a great friend when I was the president at Southeastern, and uh, and I I appreciated you, and it's great to see how Austin has grown and matured and moved into his own. It's very very rewarding
1: to see it and thank you for the invitation well thank you mark in fact i read your book the other day of kings and prophets i have to admit now guys this is one of the best books that i've ever read as far as the old testament and what the responsibilities of prophets are even in the old and in the new testament we're going to talk about that in depth today and i highly encourage everybody goes to the bookstore goes to amazon or goes where go wherever you need to go Uh, mark are you selling this on your website also or is it just available through like amazon and bookstores
2: it is available in all those places, but the easiest and fastest place to get it is drmarkrutland.com. They can go there, and we can put it in the mail
1: today. Okay, I urge everybody to order from Dr. Mark Rutland and not to go to Amazon, <laughs> not to and not to go to the bookstore. That was that was a pretty that was a, that was a pretty direct. That's to get telling you that I I I don't like Amazon. I don't like drmarkrutland.com. In addition to that. You know, he also has has headed and has started this Global Servants, and as you guys know, you know we have adopted several Thai girls, and we have been doing that for years now with Dr. Mark Rutland and and Global Servants. At this point, is a very good place if you're not tithing in a local church or giving money to a local church, and you want to know what you can do with your money as far as extra money you have to give to the Lord. Uh, Global Search is a great place. In fact, uh, Dr. Rutland, I believe you said you had like the highest award ever by an independent group that has gone in there and audited the company. Please, please tell me about that.
2: Yes, Charity Navigators is an organization, an independent uh, third-party organization that that analyzes the uh, financial stewardship of various charities, and we have received 100 four-star rating. The highest that you can get out of a very small percentage of charities that are analyzed get that. It means that we handle the finances with absolute integrity. Our our um, our handling of everything is above reproach. And our audit is public and so we're, we're very, very proud of that and, and it means a lot to us. These books, for example, I don't, I don't take anything. This is my 20th book. I've never taken one penny from any book sales. It all goes 100% to support our girls' homes, uh, in Thailand, which you, I've been very gracious to, uh, to take some of our girls over their responsibility and, and And in Africa, we have girls homes in in Ghana, West Africa, and in Thailand, and uh, all book sales, all my speaking engagements, everything goes one hundred percent to support those girls' homes. and my salary comes from the National Institute of Christian Leadership.
1: Perfect, okay I would I want I to let in the reason I, I reason I said that, I'm going to say it in a way that you don't have to agree with me if you don't like Dr. Mark, uh, but it's something that I've seen. Uh, You know, you've worked behind the scenes and I've worked behind the scenes on many large national ministries. And in many cases, these large national ministries, when you get behind the scenes, they're not really what you thought they were when you were not behind the scenes. And so I'm letting you guys know that right now. And I'm I'm not asking Dr. Mark Rutland to comment on that. But what I'm saying is this, that Dr. Mark Rutland's ministries, including Global Service, is exactly what it is in front of and behind the scenes that's one of the reasons I absolutely support this man. In fact, he has the dubious distinction, I guess, of me calling him on his birthday now, probably for the last, probably close to the last 20 years, and it's wishing a him year. a happy birthday. It's been years. And so that's how good of a friend he is. But I've got a couple of questions I want to start with, real quick. And Mark and I talked about this, and I got intrigued by the conversation this past weekend. Because I was wishing him and calling him for his birthday, because his, uh, his birthday's in November also. And, and what was interesting about this is that, that I started talking to him about omnipresent, and and you know, and, and what it really means. You know, since you're a theologian and, and a very good one at that, uh, Dr. Rutland, could you please go into detail on what omnipresent means and how God is omnipresent in all timelines and at all times?
2: Yes, uh, that's a
1: that's a very good question, and it is a question that a lot of people struggle with, uh, Ted.
2: Omnipresent, I, I don't think I was taught this. There is a difference between what one is taught and what one learns. But somehow I came to the idea in my junior high school and high school years that omnipresence meant that God was so big, uh, like, like the steam in a room, that he was so huge that there was some of him everywhere. But that, that's actually blasphemy. Um, God can never be partial. So, uh, in other words, omnipresence means that God is all together in every place and in every timeline at the same time complete. Uh, when when Moses says to God uh, and, uh, at the burning bush, he says, when I go down and say to the people in, Israel, in Egypt, the Hebrew people to follow me, they're going to say, what is your name? What is God's name? And and God answers ayesh in Hebrew. I am that I am. God could never be. I, I can never be partial. He is all together Himself, always in every place, all at the same time. That's
1: that's the miracle of omnipresence. And, and you know the the thing that we were talking about on Sunday, and it, and it was so intriguing to me. And we were talking about in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus was still in his physical state and he knew he was going back into his omnipresent state once he was resurrected and he was asking God, basically, if there's any other way of doing this, can you take this cup away from me? And, you know, when I was talking to you about the fact that once he became omnipresent again, he would ever, forever experience the cross, ever, forever experience the book of you know, Genesis, forever experience the end times, forever experience the book of Revelation because he's outside of time space. Can you kind of address yeah. that real quickly? Um, everybody, Americans
2: particularly, confuse two words. They use them interchangeably. And they are close, but they don't mean exactly the same thing. The words are everlasting and eternal. So everlasting means exactly what it says. It lasts forever. But the problem with the limitation of the word everlasting is that something might be everlasting only in the temporal realm, inside time. So if something lasts, inside time it could be getting older and older in which case god could be getting older and go senile. now now we're in deep soup uh but god is not just <laughs> everlasting he, he's eternal so eternal means that it exists outside the parameters of the temporal zone so so in other words time has no effect on god he time exists in the palm of his hand so talk about the, the blood of Jesus, the eternal sacrifice. Hebrews says his blood is on the mercy seat, an eternal sacrifice. So what does it mean? It means that the effect of time, gravity, uh, any of those things has no effect on it. So the blood that's on the mercy seat is just as wet today as it was the first minute he poured it out, because it is eternal. It exists outside of the realm
1: of, of, of time. You know, it's interesting because, I mean, I've never heard a preacher preach this from the pulpit. I've never heard anything talking about how God's blood is an eternal sacrifice for us. I mean, they mention that in the book of Hebrews. Every once in a while they'll talk about it, but they don't explain it from a timeline. Now, there's another thing you talked to me about, too, because we talked about the fractional timeline and when all things come together to co- coalesce into the eternal now, I guess. Some people call it to the actual reality of what we're happening, what's happening right now. And you were talking about the fullness of time. Can you explain that, too, please? That's a tr- an intriguing passage of Scripture Paul uses in, in his letter to the church
2: at Galatia. <laughs> Excuse me. In Galatians, he talks about Jesus coming in the fullness of time. Now, there are two different ways to view that, and that is to say that all the historical vectors had to come together at just the right moment. That is to say you had to have the right historical setting the context had to be right and and there is that god had a perfect plan inside time but what it also means is that the eternal and the temporal collide in perfect unison at that moment because jesus the baby the the, the human jesus is the is also the coexistent pre-eternal second person of the Trinity. John deals with this in his narrative at the first of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he says, and the Word became flesh. So the transcendent Word of God steps through the membrane between eternity and time, and submits himself to the ravages of time. He has to grow in time. And so, therefore, the Bible says, and he grew in favor with man and with God. So, um, when a human baby is born, a human baby is not self-aware. A human baby is not lying there thinking to himself, someday uh, I'm going to be on the radio. (laughs) He's he's not self-aware. He has to grow into the understanding of himself as a human. So, the Bible says, Jesus had to grow in self-awareness of himself as a human and as God. So imagine a little boy who is beginning to recapture his memory of pre-existence, outside time. And so he is living with and talking to people who have no concept of that and have no language for it. So everything that he says, every room Jesus left... Everybody was asking two questions. Who was that guy and what was he talking about? Because he was he's he's using transcendent eternal thought and he's loading it on human vocabulary and the boxcars are too light for the weight. So wow. take for example when he says when he says let the dead bury the dead. Well, that's an absurd statement. Isn't it? But yes. he, he, what he's talking, he's using life and death at two different levels. It's a conversation, Ted, that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When Satan says to Eve, did God say that when you ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil that you would die? You won't die. Well, she ate the fruit, and in fact, she didn't die. She just died. <laughs> so So... <laughs> She didn't eat the fruit and drop down dead, but she, became, she entered into death, and death entered the human race. So Jesus is saying there are two different kinds of life. There are two different kinds of death. Um, it, it's, it's in all of his conversations where he is, he is dealing with eternal transcendent thought, outside time, that he is the eternal I am. And he is talking to people who are trapped in time. So the only vocabulary he can use is theirs. But the vocabulary is too frail for the eternal thought.
1: Too narrow. And also, so let me kind of, let me, so let me see if I can get this right, because it's a really hard concept to, to really get through. So Jesus is born as a baby. He has no idea, of course, that he's God. He has no idea who he is. And so as he grows and starts going into pubescence and is left in the temple and he starts saying that I have to be about my father's work, everybody's looking at him like he's kind of nuts except for Mary because Mary knew who his daddy was. And suddenly, you know, he starts to understand that he is God. He starts remembering the Garden of Eden. He starts remembering the end of what's going to happen in the book of Revelation. He knows the temple's going to be burned and destroyed. He starts remembering everything because he at one time was omnipresent, and suddenly it comes back to him like in a flasher in bits and pieces until he understands who he is and he starts his ministry. Is that about right? Precisely. And and it
2: goes throughout his entire ministry. Uh, in um, in the Gospel of John, this is a fascinating Passage: When when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, you mentioned the garden at Gethsemane. When they have come to arrest him, Jesus says, "Whom seekest thou?" And they say, "Jesus of Nazareth." Okay, that's an answer in time. We are here for an historical person who is alive in this moment, and Jesus answers in the King James Bible. He answers, "I am He." But if you look at at the verse. He is italicized. It's not in standard font, which means it isn't in the original script. The the English translator adds it because it doesn't seem to make sense to just say, I am. But actually, what Jesus answers, if he answers in Hebrew, but probably in some Aramaic version of it, but in Hebrew, he answers again, I am. (laughs) They say, say, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, I am. That's the same phrase that God uses to Moses. I am. So then the eternity of the moment dawns on the soldiers, and it says they fall down and fall to the ground. Because what occurs to them is, we came out here to arrest Jesus of Nazareth, and we're out here trying to bust God. (laughs) that's a very terrifying thought for a mountainside full of cops
1: (laughs) well yeah well and you think about it too you know when the people were there crucifying christ and they see that the the temple curtain being ripped they see the earthquake happening they see everything go black and they must have thinking you know we kind of messed this up this was a mistake and you know the bible says had the god of this age known what he was doing he never would have crucified the son of glory because of course that set up the entire redemption process for us through jesus and through the blood of christ and, you know, and I just, and I talk about this stuff so much on the show, and I wanted to bring you on because when we talk about a fractional timeline, like we're looking through a kaleidoscope, and all of this stuff has all these opportunities to be something different. And God knows what all those opportunities are at once because He's outside of time space looking down at the entire timeline. He understands how it's going to all work out. But we as human beings, we're kind of confused because we have so many choices. But when it all coalesces and this fractional timeline becomes one, that becomes the fullness of time. Or like you said, it becomes an historic event. In which Jesus says, "I am that I am," or he basically says that you know, Abraham, I knew Abraham. Explain that too in the book of John when the Pharisees were fussing at him and he was telling them that they were the children of the devil, and they said, "Oh, we're not with the children of Abraham." What was he meaning by all that when he was talking about that? Was he talking about the ones that were ill, who were being evil and who were doing things they shouldn't ought to do? Explain why Jesus did that in the book of John. If you've got any any verses on that you want to cite, Doctor Rutland?
2: Yeah. And in, uh, in in John eight, uh, there is this fascinating. That's that's interesting. You connect those conversations because again, he uses the same phrase. A yet, so he says to them, you you act like uh, your your father. You 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 do the things that he did. You you murder the prophets. You 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 are descendants of a of a spirit of evil and and they say he says to them abraham in time longed to see this moment which transcends time and they answer jesus in terms of time they say you're not even 50 years old how, how do you know what abraham wanted and jesus says before there was an abraham so that's a that's a historical statement Before there was an Abraham, I am. That's right. So he uses, he's using history and trans-history at the same time.
1: So he was letting them know at that point that they were talking to the great I am. Of course, they rejected that. that. And then then they got into this giant argument about them being the children of the devil and him saying, you know, if you were basically of Abraham, you would believe what I was telling you, but you're not. That's, and so he basically talks right. to them. And I'm I, and remember, at this point in time, everybody, this is really important that we, that we get the concept. At this point in time, God had repeatedly chastised the ancient Israelites for their worship of Baal and of Asherah and of Moloch, and the sacrificing of their children. Now, Jesus knew that he was fully aware of everything that was going on you know, at nighttime when they weren't in the temple or whatever these people were doing. And that's why he was extremely frustrated with them. And then he even got to the point where he finally just said to him, I am. Well, of course, that's why they brought him to pilot, because they blasphemed. He said they he said they said he blasphemed by claiming that. And so it's very important that we understand that Jesus's timeline and what he was trying to tell these people wasn't based on, you know, 33 A.D. or 32 A.D. or 35 A.D. Whatever it was, what it was based on was basically him saying to them that I am eternal. I am the great I am. You guys aren't getting this, and that's why you're basically hassling me and basically persecuting me. Does that kind of sum that up, Dr. Rutland? Yeah, that's
2: exactly right. The whole the whole concept of of the the separation between uh, like that there is some impenetrable veil between space and time and eternity. And God makes it clear, I can penetrate that veil at any moment because I own both sides. So God is the God of time. He is also the God of eternity. So I'll give you a great example. Remember um, when the disciples, after the resurrection, some of the disciples had seen Jesus and some hadn't. And Thomas says, I can I can't live like this anymore, where Jesus seems to be in the eternal. He seems to come back. He's alive. He's dead. He's alive again. He's king. He's not king. He's messiah. He's not messiah. He says he needs to either stay on one side of the veil or the other. If he's God, stay over on the God side. If he's human, let him be here with us. And Jesus walks through the wall, literally and figuratively, and says, Touch these wounds. So the wounds that are inflicted in time are still visible in eternity.
1: Wow. So his experience on the cross is still visible in eternity because he's eternal. All of it is. That's it's what he did for us when he went to the cross as an omnipresent precisely. being. Exactly.
2: So the cross is not something that we have to look back at over 2,000 years. The the eternal sacrifice and the eternal priesthood of Jesus are not subject to space and time. So they are 100% the same. By the way, it has a great encouragement to us about heaven, about for us. So, Ted, did you ever hear people say, uh, I'm afraid after a while in heaven I'll be bored? You know, and yes, I've heard them say it. To, they ask stupid questions, then, like you know, will they have uh, will they have bass fishing in heaven, or will they have pool tables? Because their thinking is trapped in space and time. But when we when we go through the physical doorway of death, when we step through, that is that's an historical event. Death is going to happen to everyone if if we live long enough. And Jesus Terry in his return. When we step through the physical doorway of death, we, if we are existing now in a state of death, sin and death, when we go through the doorway of death, we step from death into death, eternal death. If we are alive in Christ now, when we step through the doorway of death, we step through into eternity, which means that space and time have no more claim on us. So imagine if you, can, if you can, if we can dilate our imagination to this, imagine the absolute unspeakable splendor, the ecstasy, the unutterable ecstasy of your first split second in heaven. Okay, that has no, the, time has no effect on that. So it is the same eternally, unchanged by time, because now that ecstasy is eternal. So it, it, you're not going to get bored because you're not living in time. You're experiencing well, that ecstatic moment, unchanging and unchanged by time eternally.
1: And that's why Jesus says, death, where is thy victory? Where is thy sting? I've overcome both death, hell, and the grave. Exactly.
2: Because those wow. things, those things cannot affect
1: eternity you know this is a really encouraging message for my listeners today and i i guys i want you to really pay attention to what dr rutland is talking about when we become a christian we're not affected by death in time space because as soon as we step through that door it just goes immediately into the eternal heaven and which will be there forever and dr rutland is saying that when we get there we go wow this place is cool that's going to be eternal thought. It's going to always be that way. Wow, this place is cool. There's, I guess, so much to do, so many things to see. Whatever we're going to have, we're not going to get bored whatsoever. And, you know, I, I find it interesting, too, because, you know, when I, when, let's, let's, let's go ahead and, and, and jump for just a second here on this. You know, this book you've written on, of prophets, of and kings and prophets, which is, I'm going to say this again, it's absolutely excellent. It talks about what happens when prophets, and I want to start with the current day, right now, when prophets say, hey, you know, Donald Trump is going to be, well, let me put it this way, when so-called prophets say, you know, Donald Trump's going to be reelected a second term or Donald Trump is, you know, basically running the United States from Mar-a-Lago when Joe Biden never won the election and on, so forth and so on. Now, a lot of prophets who said that, they've come out, so-called prophets, and they've said, hey, look, I missed it from God. I didn't hear from God properly. But then there are a lot of them that have dug their basically dug in deeper than a tick on a hound dog and they're still saying that they were right. Explain to us what's going on here. Explain to us if these people are real prophets and explain to us what they're supposed to do when they miss it. Dr. Rutland, go ahead.
2: Yeah, it's it, it is not a new issue. Um see the problem is Ted Anybody can make prognostications. You can make a prediction. Hey, I think this is what's going to happen. I'm an observer of human history. I believe this will happen. You can even say, this is what I want to happen. You can even say, I think this would be pleasing to God. But when you tack on, when one tacks on, thus saith the Lord, you are claiming the weight of eternity. You're claiming, I've heard from God. And I'm saying what God has told me to say. And you have to be held accountable for that. And, and it's happened throughout history. It happened in the Old Testament. Uh, in my book, I deal with a false prophet named Zedekiah. And he's a classic example of exactly what you're talking about. So uh, not to be confused, by the way, the false prophet Zedekiah, not to be confused with a, a subsequent king named Zedekiah. This is a false prophet named Zedekiah. He works for and supports the evil king Ahab, who's married to Jezebel. So Jehoshaphat, the good king of Judah, and the evil king Ahab form a political alliance, which uh, a military alliance, which Jehoshaphat never should have gotten involved in. Be careful who you form uh, partnerships with. But they're going out to fight the Syrians. And so Jehoshaphat, the good king, says, Let's get a prophet, and let's hear what he has to say. So Ahab brings Zedekiah, this false prophet, and he wants to make it all dramatic, and he fashions like horns, like a a longhorn cow out of iron, and puts them up to his head. And he says, you'll go out against the Syrians like a, a powerful bull, and you'll gore them like this. And Jehoshaphat senses something's wrong, and he says, is there another prophet? And so Uh, Ahab says, yes, there's another prophet, but I don't like him. He never prophesies good for me. So they bring Micaiah, the true prophet, and he mocks them. They tell him, Zedekiah has prophesied we'll win. And he says, oh, yeah, by all means, you'll win. Go, 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 you're going to win. And Ahab, this wicked king, says the most amazing thing. He says, how many times have I told you, don't tell me anything but what God says? And Micaiah, the true prophet, says, you want to know what God says? You're going to lose this battle, and you're going to be killed. You'll die a horrible, bloody death. You will never come home from the battlefield. And Ahab, the wicked king, says, when I come back from the battlefield, I'm going to throw you in prison. And Micaiah, the true prophet, says, if you come back at all, I'm a false prophet. So there you have it. The false prophet predicts what he wants to happen, a political and military outcome that he wants. The true prophet tells the truth and is willing to be
1: held accountable. That's that's amazing. Yeah. And, 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 and well, you know, I, I, I'm i not going to mention any names today because it's not something we do on the show. But there are a lot of people out there that are basically saying that, you know, what I mentioned earlier about Trump having won the election and they're not willing to say that, that they're wrong. And so what I say to yeah. all of you today is this. And I'm, and I'm talking to the guys and a lot of you guys listen to the show that are false prophets. And here's what I say to you. Just admit you were wrong. It's, it's, this is not yeah. the end of the world. Just say you missed it. And, you know, but you need to be aware of something. It's like Dr. Rutland says, when you say, thus saith the Lord, and I I know a a man who used to have a national TV show, and he's always making prophecies, 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 prophecies. He was always wrong. He was always messing up, and he always liked to say, thus saith the Lord. He said that. I've heard him say that repeatedly on the air, and then he would never come back when he missed it and didn't happen. Now, let me explain to you guys why this is important to understand that. When you have an omnipresent God that sits outside of time space, that holds time in his hand, who knows what the fractional outcome is going to be of every possibility all of the time, and he's looking at the beginning to the end, he already knows what's going to happen. He doesn't, he doesn't have to guess. He sees it in real time, if you want to say it that way to make it more sensible. So when God, when someone says, thus saith the Lord, they're saying that God just made a mistake. That's what they're saying. Because they're saying that God is sitting outside of time space and he sees what's happening in advance. When John's writing in the book of Revelation on the Isle of Patmos, God already saw 666. He already saw the mark of the beast. He told John what to write. And we need to understand that it had already happened in time space and God knew it. And that's why it's so important. Also, there's one other thing in the book of Hebrews, and let's go back to Jesus' young childhood. And it says in the book of Hebrews, after having been made perfect, he became basically, you know, the Messiah. He became the Christ. I really believe that that means, too, if you look at it from a scriptural standpoint, that after having been made perfect through the fullness of time, when everything that coalesced together, then at that point he was, quote-unquote, considered to be able to be sacrificed for our sins. Is that right, Dr. Rutland, i am I adding too much to that, or am I reading too many things into that?
2: No, he, he, you had to have a perfect sacrifice. Okay, that's the reason that the, all of the Old Testament sacrifices were insufficient and temporary. So every year you had to have the Day of Atonement. Every year you had to sacrifice bulls and, and goats and, and turtle doves because they, those sacrifices were in time. Their blood would dry up. Their bodies would decay. So Jesus becomes the eternal sacrifice and the eternal priesthood after an order of Melchizedek and not after the order of Aaron. The order of Aaron is abrogated. It's finished. But the order of Melchizedek has no beginning, no ending, and Jesus is our high priest. So he is a high priest who can't get old. He's not going to get senile. He's not going to die. There's not going to ever be another high priest. He is our high priest in eternity. So we, in time, access his eternal priesthood by faith. And his sacrifice, he administers his own sacrifice. That's what Jesus said. Nobody takes my life from me. I, what? I lay it down. So Jesus administers himself as a sacrifice on the eternal throne and it becomes the mercy seat and therefore it's all eternal it's the same to me today as the moment it happened on mount calvary
1: that you know this this i don't know why and i guess maybe the thought process is too deep for some congregations to get but my listeners are extremely brilliant and you know they've been listening to me talk about the same type of stuff for years now and so I have to just step back for a second and think, you know, why in the world would a church take the cross out of the sanctuary when it's eternal because it's always going to be with us because Christ is eternal? Why would they stop talking about Jesus and the blood atonement because that's going to be in the order of Kel- Melchizedek forever? And why do they just want to make it happy, happy like a rah-rah hoopla sermon? sermon, which there's a place for that. I'm not I'm not picking on people because Zig Ziglar was very good about that. You get a lot of preachers now that are motivational speakers, and there is a, there's a place for it, but it's very shallow because they never talk about the things of the Lord. They never talk about repentance. They never talk about the things that the Bible talks about as far as the things that God likes and doesn't like. Because you know, And I love the way your book does this. It goes back into the Old Testament, and it talks about you know God's personality in some of these different places that you discuss this in the book of Kings and Prophets. And what I want people to realize is God in the Old Testament is the exact same God that he is in the New Testament because he's outside sure. of time space. He's the same yesterday, today and forever and people want to say, well God's not like that anymore. That's blasphemy. He's always like that. He's always the same. He's not fickle. Where he changes his mind and does this like like King Nero was or the you know the, the Caesar Nero. I mean it's just crazy people don't understand that God can't be that way. He's the same. Otherwise it would be very unstable. If you have the creator of the universe changing his mind about stuff all the time, it's going to be, it's going to be crazy. Now there were three places in the Bible. I believe it was with Joshua and it was with the flood and it was when Jesus came that God forever changed the timelines as far as the outcomes. Can you explain that in a little bit more detail, Dr. Rutland? Yes. Okay. This,
2: uh, this presumed veil. Between space and eternity, between time and eternity, excuse me, between time and eternity, which veil is only a veil to us. It doesn't inhibit God in some way. All of what we call time, the temporal zone, and all of eternity are the same in God. God is God of human history as well as God beyond human history. But but God can reach in to space and time and do anything he wants to. We call those miracles. When God intercepts the natural laws, he can do that at any moment. Uh, take, for example, the resurrection of Lazarus. Okay? Um, the, the natural order, he was dead and his flesh was decaying. He was four days in the grave. And, and God reverses... The ravages of space and time on that corpse breathes the spirit of life back into him and raises him from the dead. So there are those times. So take, for example, the Valley of Agilon, which you mentioned, Joshua. Joshua wants to continue a battle, and so he asks God to make the whole universe stand still. Now think what that prayer is, to say make the sun stand still. It doesn't really... The sun, it means the whole universe freezes in time. The physics of that are absolutely mind-bending. Everything, all the planets, stars, everything, the universe is in constant motion. And God says, all right, we'll make it stand still, just in order to to elongate this battle for, for Joshua. Um, when Jesus steps through, when... The, the baby Jesus is born, he is at that moment Messiah Emmanuel. He, there's not some magic moment where where the baby Jesus becomes the Messiah. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. So the moment that little tiny flesh baby is born, he is both human flesh submitted into time, and He is the eternal, pre-existent, co-eternal God at the same moment, <laughs> and that is this—that's the splendor
1: of Christmas. No, you're you're absolutely right, and I'm going to kind of put it this way, which is going to tie together with the things that I've talked about on the show. God's looking at time; He's looking at the entire history of the universe. And he has to insert certain places into that history, into that timeline, which, by the way, when he does that, it changes the fractional timeline. You know, God's relationship to man, man's relationship to man all got changed with Christ came in. And God knew the same thing with the book of Noah in Genesis chapter six. If I flood the planet, all of the timeline from that point forward is going to go away because it doesn't exist anymore, because that's going to be everybody's going to be dead. And he did. So he he's very, very very careful when he does that he's careful when he does miracles he's careful when he changes the timeline he did it with Noah he did it with Joshua he did it with Jesus like you said he did it with Lazarus you know but of course when it happened with Lazarus that probably didn't affect the entire timeline behind the life of Lazarus but it definitely affected those people who saw him resurrect from the dead and walk out of the tomb that changed everything just like when Jesus walked out of the tomb it changed everything took away the ancient Roman Empire of open crucifixion and gladiatorial combat to the death. It changed everything. And these people that run the planet right now, whatever you want to call them, they want that old world order back. People say it's the new world order. Well, no, they don't. They don't like the fact that God inserted Jesus into the timeline because it changed everything. And these evil folks that are running the planet right now, they want their old world order back. I mean, Klaus Schwab says by 2030 you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. That's not of God. And he's not a Christian. So what religion, what faith did they have? So let's go back now to the Old Testament again. Let's talk about Pharaoh. Let's talk about the Egyptians. Let's yeah, talk about the good. golden calf when they left Egypt. And let's talk about why God got so upset with Pharaoh about the Israelites that were being held captive. Go ahead, Dr. Rutland.
2: Good. What a great question. Uh, all right. It's it's so nice to actually be interviewed by somebody that's actually read the book. So I appreciate that <laughs> that's first true. of all. I know you've done enough interviews with people that have no clue why you're on the show. Okay. The most famous of all prophetic utterances is Moses' prophetic utterance to Moses, uh, to uh, Moses' prophetic utterance to Pharaoh. Uh, People know it who don't even know it from the Bible. Maybe they only know it from Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, but they know it. And it is, thus saith the Lord, let my people go. That's the most famous of all prophetic statements. Let my people go. The problem is people miss the, the the operative word. The important word in the sentence is my. Let my people go. God says the Hebrew people belong to me. Pharaoh says, no, they belong to me. I decide where they work, what they eat, where they live, and I decide when they die. So you remember, Pharaoh becomes concerned that the Hebrew slaves are becoming too many and too strong. And he orders the Egyptian midwives to kill the male babies after they're born. So he is claiming authority. Now let me connect it to an historical reality right now, and that's abortion. So the phrase you hear all the time is, it's my body, it's my choice. And what God says is, that's the voice of Pharaoh. It's not your body. Your body belongs to me. And the unborn baby belongs to me. So the sin of abortion, yes, it is the sin of murder. I'm not equivocating on that, but that's a consequential sin. It's not the primary sin. The primary sin is self ownership. My body, but your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So God says, no, your body is not yours and the unborn baby is not yours. So before you commit, before one can commit an abortion, You have to deny the ownership of God. That's the reason that that unbelievers hate the authority of God is because the authority of God says your body is not yours. So now you even have philosophical discussions going on. If if your readers don't know this, I can tell you it's true. Your listeners, it's 100% true. There are philosophical discussions going on where they euphemistically say post Birth abortion, which means straight out infanticide to murder a baby that's just been born, because maybe there's something wrong with it, or or maybe that at the last minute the mother decides I don't want it, and she and the doctor can agree together and kill that baby. That's it's not it's not legal in the United States yet, but it is being discussed internationally. Post birth abortion. That is a direct link, historically and spiritually, to the character and nature of Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, it's my baby, and I decide if it lives. And God says, no, it's mine, and I decide if it lives. That's the contest.
1: You know, uh, of course, that's been the contest since 1973, since Roe versus Wade, and it goes right back to the ancient Canaanite religions and the worship of Baal and Moloch and Asherah and the sacrifice of children and the worship of Isis and Osiris. That they picked up out of Egypt and then the children of Israel, the Israel, ancient Israel, when they came out of, you know, Egypt and they, you know, basically went out there and crossed the Red Sea and had the curtain of fire around them before they went there in the, the pillar of fire and the, and the, and the cloud covering them by day. And, and they go over to the other side of the sea and then Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And they come back down and they're having a giant, uh, sacrificial ritual, I guess, a giant sex orgy ritual killing people. And that was because they were still dealing with what they had learned in Egypt for over 400 years. And then God left them in the desert for 40 years, so they would stop doing that. But it never really ended. I, I, and Another part of the book that I really, really found intriguing, in what Samuel says, and I'm, I'm quoting this directly from the book now, says, at this point, Samuel speaks some of the most important words in the entire Bible. Do you think that God cares more about sacrifice than he does about obedience? Rebellion is like witchcraft. And you ask the question, "Why is that true, Doctor Rowland? And it's a fascinating prophetic statement to make, a, to make to make to take to a king who has natural authority. Rebellion is a toxic word to any king, and rebellion that bypasses the king forms a kind of substitute power. That's mutiny. That's rebellion. Samuel is saying. What if somebody got an army and came against you? Isn't that rebellion? That's the same thing witchcraft is because witchcraft bypasses the supernatural power and will of God to seek another pathway to power. By the way, it's very, very well written, Dr. Rutland. And then you go on to say we're talking about how Saul then goes to the – because Samuel basically has died and Saul goes to the witch of Endor. And he goes to the witch of Endor and Saul basically disguises himself and he, and the witch says to Saul because he's trying to get information from him – You know, to 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 the king, Saul has made this eagle. I'm not doing illegal. I'm not doing this because you're trying to get me killed. Saul replies, "I promise you, no harm will come to you, and I will protect you. I promise you." So against God's word, she wants to call up the spirit of Samuel, and then you said something very unique, and you said that Samuel shows up, but you talk about how that happened. And I thought that was absolutely... Inter- yeah. well, maybe, let me just read it. It says, I think God intercedes, but not to honor... This is what you say. I think that God interceded, but not to honor the witch. God forbid. She is absolutely engaged in witchcraft. Dealing with the dead is forbidden by God, and this is quite clear in the Scripture. I believe God intervened in an otherwise occult process, allowing Samuel, the great prophet, to prophesy one last time to a fallen and doomed king. The other possibility is that... All it was was witchcraft, and somehow this witch was actually able to summon the dead. However, I have trouble with that. I don't believe that level of witchcraft really works. My core belief is that God intervened in the whole affair. You want a word from Samuel? I'll give you a word from Samuel. He lets the spirit of Samuel appear. God can do that, because God can transmitigate between the supernatural world and the natural world, which is we've been talking about the whole show. Jesus did it. My conclusion is that God tricked the witch and Saul. You want to deal with the dead? Here's a dead prophet. You know, You want to know what the truth is? Here it is. You'll be dead before the sun goes down tomorrow. By the way, that is the best interpretation of that particular passage of scripture Dr. Rutland and I have ever heard. If you guys aren't going to buy the book for anything else, it's to warn you and to warn your friends about witchcraft and how you need to stay away from it and how God doesn't like it. And so, guys. It's so important to get that. This whole witchcraft that's coming back onto the scene today with the worship of Baal and Baphomet and Osiris and all the crazy stuff, it's not of God. It's of the devil, and it's been forbidden by God in the scripture. I have a friend of mine who's a nationally known radio broadcaster. He ended up putting a witch on his show on a regular basis, and he ended up getting fired from the show, and he ended up getting in a giant lawsuit with the witch. I mean, it was a whole big mess. It was a big disaster, and I warned him not to do it. Dr. Rutland. How dangerous is it to get involved with occult things like this concert we saw last weekend when they opened up the jaws of hell? What in the world are we supposed to do as Christians when we see stuff like that?
2: Oh my Ted, I cannot state this strongly enough. Don't tamper with inappropriate access to the supernatural. There is only one mediator between man and God, and that is Jesus. Don't deal with don't worship angels, don't settle for all of this rise of neo-paganism, and it's happening. Uh, People claiming to be druids and all kinds of crazy weird stuff, Ted. It is all connected back to to, to this one issue. I don't want to submit myself to the ownership of God, but I want the power of the supernatural. So therefore, I must bypass God's authority, which is rebellion, and and God says that is witchcraft. That's witchcraft. However you state it, whatever tidy new language you dress it up in, druidism and, and the talk of I'm, I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not a religious person. All of that talk is all the way to tidy up and put a nice new garment on an old reality, which is supernatural rebellion, which is witchcraft.
1: And, and I will say this, and I and I I don't know how to make this any more strong than this. That was a crime that was punishable by death by God. Now, by the grace of God, we have Christ in the New Testament. But that doesn't mean we're supposed to dilly-dally with that stuff and to get involved with it at all. I'm talking, now I'm talking Ouija boards. I'm talking about going to movies which basically promote witchcraft and showing things of the supernatural and things of the devil. We don't, we don't need to go to those things and see those things. We don't need to put any of that stuff into our mind. It's really important. We've got to stay with what the word says. And I'm going to go back to one other verse that I remember from the Bible. It says, don't you know that ye yourselves are God's temple and his spirit lives within you? You are owned by God. You've got to get that. Everybody needs to get that. Everybody on this planet is. And when you walk away from the God's ownership, you're right, Pastor. You want to go through another person's, how should I say, ownership, that would be the demonic ownership, to try to see the things that are supernatural. That is not of God, and that is witchcraft, and it has to be avoided. Pastor Rutland, we've got about another two minutes. Go ahead and, and close this up, and then I'll do the final closing. But you Go ahead and take about two minutes. Give me your final thoughts.
2: Well, I, I'm so glad you've interviewed me about the book, and I do hope people will get it and they can find it at drmarkrutland.com. Here's the, here's the bottom line of the whole book of the reason I wrote of Kings and Prophets, which is this, that people want to hear from God. They long to hear from God, and other people take advantage of that, exploit that appetite that inherent appetite for god for their own purposes or for political or military purposes for others the purest and truest way to hear from god is the bible just read your bible pray and believe the holy spirit and remember that you do not have to live subject to somebody else's idea of what god is saying each person can hear from god in himself through the power of the of the Word of God, the Bible, and the holy spirit you don't have you don't need some great prophet to tell you the great spirit of prophecy is Jesus of nazareth revelation nineteen nine and ten the truth of all prophecy
1: is the testimony of Jesus wow that's very very well said and, and you know the thing i want, I want people to realize is this you know I very rarely bring guests on you guys know that and i have never brought another preacher on except for chuck baldwin and dr rutland in the six seven years we've been doing the show and that's it and that's how much i endorse this man and what he has to say i told you beginning of the show that he's one of the most brilliant people i've ever met extensive vocabulary and i want to thank him so much for being on the show today because you mean the world to me dr rutland i appreciate you taking you all the way to the closing music and thanks again. And anytime you ever want to come on the show, you let me know and I'll put you back on. Thanks again for being my guest. And, guys, I just God want you to know you something, too. Thanks, my friend. I also want you guys to know that, uh, you know, Martin, that uh, Austin will be on with Hagman tonight. We're looking forward to him being on tonight. And I want you to know something, guys. I prayed for you today. I pray that God's grace comes upon you, that he blesses you, that he keeps you, that he allows his face to shine upon you. And that he's gracious unto you. And in all the areas of your life, you give him ownership. That's really, really important, and we talked about that on today's show. I love you guys. I appreciate you. I'll talk to you guys next time.